there had been rumors of Houdini being a spy. I'm Peter Creighton, and welcome to The Looking Glass, a program that examines the stories behind personal interests. This is what you might call a pilot episode. It is my intention that The Looking Glass program will become the home to some of the most insightful, engaging, and generally entertaining stories out there. To begin, I feel like we should begin at the beginning. I grew up in the beautiful city of Chicago. It was in college that my interest in storytelling began to blossom. While working at my college radio station, I began to meet some of the most interesting people who were chock full of amazing stories. One of those individuals is my friend and co-creator of this program, Steve Anderson. He and I have spent countless hours sharing personal anecdotes, discussing what makes a good story, general story structure, and so much more that I could spend the rest of the program discussing what we've discussed. It was from these conversations that the idea for this program was born. Now that we've taken care of official business, we can begin with today's story. This episode is going to explore how the recommendation of a grade school teacher, a parent, and a book opened up the world of magic to our guest. Actually, I should be a little bit more specific. The world of Harry Houdini. I'm William Kalouche, and I'm the executive director at Conjuring Arts Research Center in New York. According to their mission statement, Conjuring Arts is a non-for-profit organization dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of magic and its allied arts. It's a library home to some of the rarest pieces of magic history in the world. But more on that to come a little later on. Mr. Kalush's interest in magic began where many interests are born, at home. When I was young, my father had been a Marine who was uh, horrifically wounded on Guadalcanal, World War II. And as he was mending in the hospital, somebody taught him a little magic. So many years later, when I was a kid, he taught me a few things, and it just uh, stuck with me, got me fascinated with the, the art of deception as, a, as entertainment. I have thought about what my first memory is, but yes, I, I think that's right. I think that was my, my first memory of magic, was, was him teaching me some magic. After his father showed him some magic tricks, Mr. Kalush began his exploration of magic. Then everything changed in eighth grade. I'm always amazed how one everyday occurrence can have life-changing consequences. Well, I had a, an eighth grade teacher, Mr. Z, we called him, and he suggested to the entire class, I was already interested in magic, uh, but he suggested to the class that we should read a book about this a specific book, I think it was the only book in the school library, about Houdini. And I read it, and I was fascinated, because it took these little bits of magic and these little pieces of tricks and things, and it turned it into a real life. You could really understand somebody living this life through reading about Houdini. And I was fascinated. And there's a dirty little secret that on the magician side, there's not as much respect for Houdini as he deserves, in my opinion. So over, I, of course, my eyes got wide reading this book, and I became an immediate hero worshiper of Houdini. And over time, the older magicians kind of beat that out of me. They sort of, you know, said, well, Houdini was just a showman, or he was just this, or just that. He wasn't great. He wasn't as good as other people of his time. And I kind of believed that. And 
it took a very long time, maybe 30 years, before it came around to understanding they were wrong and that Houdin was great and the public is right. And they got it. The, the public knows about him because he was that great. And that's when I started doing original research, and that's when I wrote the book with Larry Sloman on, on Houdini, The Secret Life of Houdini. The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero, is a biography that explores Houdini's professional and personal life. It is full of amazing Houdini stories. But most exciting of all is that in his research, William Kalush, childhood fan of magic and Houdini, began to make new discoveries about the legend. One of the things that we discovered was the, the iconic upside-down straitjacket that he used to do, mm-hmm. the suspended straitjacket. He usually used newspaper buildings. He probably got that from a young man in the, way out in the provinces in England. Imagine this. You're an aspiring escape artist, and Harry Houdini, the superstar of your time, shows up at your house for dinner. Pretty far-fetched, right? Well, Houdini could have gone out to dinner after a show with the mayor or the local celebrities or whomever he liked. He was as big as it got. This is the peak of his career. Instead, he got in a car and rode 45 minutes to this young man's house and had dinner with his family and talked about magic with this teenager. And this teenager had thought something up and he took him to the attic. It was an A-frame house and he he got Houdini himself to put the kid into a straight jacket, which must have been a great thrill. And they wrapped ropes around his feet and they had a block and tackle at the top of the A and they, they put it through and they pulled him upside down. And within a few months, Houdini was back in the U.S. doing the same feat, but instead of doing it inside somebody's mother's house's attic, he was doing it on the streets over hundreds of thousands of, of uh, onlookers. Very cool story, but I think I can top that one. How's this one? Harry Houdini, spy. We, had, we started off with this concept. We, there had been rumors of Houdini being a spy, and the rumors were unsubstantiated. They, were, they, they actually turned out to be rumors that he was a German spy. And that led us to thinking about all of his qualifications to not really be a full-fledged 2015-level spy, but being involved in, in intelligence gathering and just doing little bits and pieces. And sure enough, we found evidence that what would become what was called Scotland Yard Special Branch, which was a, an intelligence agency, would become MI5 eventually, and Houdini worked with them and sent them letters when he was in Germany and in Russia, were the people that those sorts of English uh, police officers were interested in knowing about. And that was a, a crazy shock when we found that out. The Secret Life of Houdini is filled with countless stories like these about Harry Houdini. But in addition to the rich storytelling, this book does a wonderful job illustrating the various forms and disciplines of magic. I'll be the first to admit that I'm not a magic expert, but I am amazed by all the various disciplines in magic. Well, magic's a very uh, rich art. There are many different disciplines and branches on that big tree, so there's lots of things to be interested in. 
and uh, all of us uh, that are interested in magic are interested in some subset of those branches, so to speak. Uh, so there's really, you could be interested in collecting material, you could be interested in doing original historical research, you could be interested in performing, you could do it as a profession, you could do it just for your own passion. There's so many aspects that it, for me, there's, there's, it's a never-ending source of inspiration and uh, enjoyment. While I was speaking with Mr. Kalush, I had to ask him what his favorite form of magic was, and his answer surprised me. Well, card magic is a very, very broad discipline within magic. It's, uh, you can do all kinds of things. You can do card magic on a stage. You can do things with, that are more or less versions of mentalism. You can do extreme sleight of hand. There's a crossover into uh, gambling material and sleight of hand. And it's, just, it's fascinating. It's never-ending. It's a, it's a huge universe within the world of magic. After a lifetime of exploring the world of magic, in 2003, William Kalush founded the Conjuring Arts Research Center. It's in New York City. Conjuring Arts is a non-for-profit that is home to over 12,000 books, journals, and other magic artifacts. It's a place where individuals who have a serious interest in magic can do research. Conjuring Arts collects materials related to magic. We catalog them, we archive them, and then we make them accessible to people that want to use them. One of our initiatives is digitizing the, the collection. And that's, I, I mentioned that we, we have about two and a half million pages, actually a little more, digitized. Uh, we have an outreach program where we teach magic to veterans and kids and some kids in the in New York City uh, lockup system, the juvenile justice system. We uh, publish a, a journal of history that we're literally publishing our 10th anniversary issue today. It's a real, it's a real, we have a wonderful editor, uh, Stephen Minch from Seattle, who's, who's edited it since day one. And it's substantial. The smallest issues are 150, 160 big pages. Oh my and God. The bigger issues, nearly 300 pages. And we've done this uh, twice a year now uh, for 10 years. And it's really, it's a place that real scholarly magic research can be published and that's that's special we're very proud of that so we have those kinds of initiatives we've uh, done a lot of things uh, we're always hoping to to help elevate the art and 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 raise the awareness in the public's mindset about magic 12,000 items in its collection in fact some of these books and artifacts can only be found at conjuring arts because there are so many things that you, you think could never could never survive, and you find these things. I mean, we found pristine decks of cards that come from a from the golden age of, of cards. We found here at the library we have numerous books that are the only copies known in the world. There's no other copy in any library in the world that's known. Oh my God, that's got to be humbling. It's amazing because it's there must have been thousands when they were printed and they're all lost except for the single copy that's left. And we we managed to get a an engraving of someone who was as level of fame was like Houdini, except it was in the sixteenth century. And this engraving was, was made in fifteen ninety two and he was known to every head of state in Europe. Uh, Rudolf the Second knew him, Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth of England knew him. James I, her successor, uh, would actually write about him in, in, his, in his book, Demonology. And this engraving is so rare that we might have the only one in the United States. It's 
really interesting. So there are things out there, but everybody's got different tastes. For some people, uh, David Copperfield has one of the greatest collections in the world of magic. Maybe it's the greatest. I shouldn't even qualify it. And he has all of Robert Houdin's material. Robert Houdin was was the father of modern magic. In fact, Houdini took his name from Robert Houdin. He took Houdin and added an I and became Houdini. And Copperfield's got things that just make your your head spin because they're they're so special. So there's there's a lot of great artifacts in our in our realm in our world. As we began to wrap up our conversation. I had to ask Mr. Kalush a question that was continuously popping up in my head as we were talking. All forms of entertainment have been affected by the advent of the digital revolution, but how has the world of magic been affected? It's made material for magicians much easier to get, more readily available. There's a lot more video. Video can be, you can stream it. You don't have to buy it on discs. Uh, There are We've built at Conjuring Arts, we've built a, a, a two and a half million page online library that can be searched. These are all things that, that new technology makes possible. And the things that you can find, the research you can do, uh, is, is saves hours or days or, or more because of the, the technology. Alternatively, if you perform and you're a magician and your audience wants to know a secret, they can go to YouTube and ask YouTube, and there will be videos of people coming up with theories about how things work. And a lot of magicians think that that's a, a problem. I, I personally don't think it's such a problem. I don't think it's a, it's a big deal. But how we learn has definitely been impacted, and I see the latest generation of young magicians coming in and reading less than, than the generation I came from. We didn't have video, so we read. And I think there's a fundamental difference in how you learn. I think reading, personally, I think reading in this kind of material is much more important than just watching a video of somebody performing. There we have it. A dad showing his son magic tricks. A teacher recommending a book to a student. What we think of as two everyday occurrences end up inspiring a life. I think it's safe to say keep your eyes and ears open. You never know who or how a recommendation or an individual may change your life forever. This edition of The Looking Glass was written, recorded, and edited by Peter Creighton. The Looking Glass was created by Steve Anderson and me, Peter Creighton. Special thanks goes to William Kalush and Janine Brookshire for helping arrange the interview. For more information on the Conjuring Arts Research Center, please visit their official website, conjuringarts.org. If you're looking for some other great programs or podcasts, I recommend 99% Invisible and Wiretap, two great inspirations for me in creating The Looking Glass. For more information on The Looking Glass, please visit our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com slash lookingglasspodcast. You can also email the show at thelookingglasspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Peter Creighton, and cheers.